I'm excited that this is your first. You have a lovely home, by the way. It feels very zen from here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is my office that I actually had a backyard office built about four months ago. And so it just has changed my world. So yeah, it's really cool. Where did you get that idea? Just, I, we have a smaller home. Once our daughter left and went away to college, you know, we downsized. We have a smaller home. We both work from home. And I, like many people during the pandemic, was moving my desk into my bedroom (laughs) and working out of that space, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah. And so just was like, you know what? I need a space. And, um, Got together with this uh, person who'd been working on our house and drew these plans, and this all kind of came to to fruition. And so it's just it's just been a game changer for me. So it's is it separate from the house? Completely, one hundred percent separate. So I literally walk out my back door, go to work in a separate place, all by myself, um, outside, separate from our house, and then you know go home for lunch. I mean, that's in my mind, that's revolutionary. Like I'm going to, I'm going to stop that for later in the future when I have a house, but I don't know, maybe someone's already done it, but that's brilliant. Like you're still at home, but you're not mm-hmm. stuck in your bedroom. Yeah. During the pandemic, that was awesome. the worst. Oh yeah. We all yeah, I wanted to we turn around it. and nap every time I was, I would just look at my bed like, I know, but I could go take a five minute mm. nap <laughs> and living in apartments. <laughs> like I, and sharing apartments, it's not like I could just like pitch tent in the in the living room. So, yeah. yeah anyways, I know. Um, yeah. So, um, I love it. First, introduce yourself. Um, your name, your social security. I'm just kidding. None of that. Uh, but uh, let everyone know your name and kind of, I guess, how you were introduced to Nose, and also um, a little bit about your work you know, past work professional, but also, you know, any like personal stuff you'd like to share that kind of like ties you into what we're talking about today, which I would like to be the icebreaker and, and share with everyone now that it is psychedelic treatment therapy. And I'm so pumped. (laughs) So excited for this. This is, uh, I don't want to say wild West territory, but it, I mean, arguably it might be, but, um, after our conversation, like I'm, I'm pumped to to unpack this with you again. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic as well. Um, I am Dr. Michelle Schuler. I am an LPC, an LCDC. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that one, it's Licensed Chemical Dependency Counselor. I am the Department Chair of Human Services at Austin Community College. And we have a General Human Services track and the Addiction Counseling track. So I've been a counselor educator for probably 15 or so years, you know, working training um, clinicians at the master's level and at the undergrad level. Um, Started working at Austin Community College in 2018 and just really fell in love with our human services students, just completely overwhelmed with joy to be with them. They're so um, incredible people. And so started doing this work uh, in 2018 and have been kind of doing it ever since. I keep a small private practice um, where I typically see folks who are either seeking recovery because they've been struggling with uh, an addiction or in recovery and hoping to maintain that lifestyle. 
Um, so I've been seeing clients uh, in the Austin area since just a little bit before pre-pandemic. And um, in terms of getting involved in this work that I'm doing now, which is around psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy, you know, I really got interested in this around 2018 or 2015 um, because my clients were coming to me who had been suffering with uh, mental health conditions and all of the things that go with that and struggling because the treatment they've been receiving hadn't necessarily been helping or working. Many of them had been, you know, given multiple types of prescriptions um, with pharmaceuticals to try and help overcome all the things that they were going through. And long story short, many of them were coming to me asking me what I knew about the psychedelics and mental health. And I was like, at the time, I was like, well, not much. <laughs> I don't know. In fact, I don't know anything, you know. And so my clients had a, quite a bit of knowledge because they had been surfing the internet. They had been getting in touch with people who were kind of doing psychedelic therapy, um, kind of underground, I guess, is the best way to, to describe that. And they were really wanting to know if I knew if that was going to be beneficial, helpful, how could they access it? And, and I honestly knew nothing. Um, but that's how I began to be curious about it and started seeking out more information around it. Um, it's been a couple of years since those first introductions from my clients around psychedelics. Um, but in that time, um, as I began to gather information for myself, look at the research, read the research, talk with other people, you know, I began to become far more aware of the potential for psychedelic assisted treatment or therapy. Um, and so embarked on a journey last year to start becoming a certified psychedelic assisted therapist. And so currently I am enrolled in the, in the Integrative Psychiatric Institute out of Boulder, Colorado. I'm a student um, in their certification training program about halfway through and just overwhelmed with information and um, gained access to incredible practitioners and people and um, the institutes that are doing the research and just really kind of like immersed myself in this area. And so here I am today, you know, talking with you about things that I've learned, you know, the community that I've been and getting connected with. And just my own curiosity about what this is going to look like, you know, what this will look like for our profession, for behavioral health, for people who are seeking out psychedelic assisted therapy. So here I am today talking with you about it. And it's pretty amazing. It's, it's a very natural evolution. I can see that. And it's I, I, I love that it was sparked out of um, a need and that you had clients that were comfortable enough to, to come and ask, you know, can you help me find out more about this? Two things I'm curious about. The first one is, as your patients came and asked you questions, uh, you know, about uh, psychedelic treatments, did you, and you, you know, you said you didn't know much at that time, right? Did you find you had people around you, either um, coworkers or other professionals that you're able to turn to and comfortably say, Hey, do you know anything about this? Or was it, uh, a, did you have to seek out pretty far the answers, mm -hmm. you know, once your, your, 
clients started asking these questions? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know who to turn to. Um, and so that was a bit of a confusion for me as practitioners, you know, we, we keep a, you know, a, a lot of people around us, colleagues, other professional supervisors, uh, all of our go-to folks, um, when we have clinical issues and concerns and questions and things we want to talk about. But in this instance, I honestly had nobody in my book. I was like, uh, I don't know who to turn to. Um, and so, but fortunately, uh, because of the area I live in, I live in Austin, Texas, and we tend to have a lot more progressive um, uh, treatments going on here, um, just in general. And so I was able to connect with some people kind of outside of the typical mental health profession. So there are folks in this area that are practicing um alternative treatments. And so I was able to reach out to a few folks that are practicing alternative um, or complementary um, treatments and begin to get information from them. But that was very far and few between. Um, and so really it was my own path, my own journey of just kind of getting online, looking for information, seeking out resources. Um, and so it, was a, it wasn't something that kind of I got you came too quickly. It took quite a few, it took a couple of years for me to just kind of sift through some information. There's a lot of misinformation out there as well. So, I mean, it was, it was a bit of that. Um, so there wasn't a lot of people to turn to uh, at that moment in time. Um, and so I was kind of walking that path alone um, for a period of time before I got connected with a bigger community. Yeah. It's a, it's a continuing continuing education opportunity. Um, but that's also because obviously the education has not been in our curriculum as far as the way in which, you know, you and I have come into the human service profession academically, right. it's just not there. So you can definitely right. see, um, you had to go out and look for it. Just kind of self-taught. Uh, I was, I'm just always wondering like, are how big these networks we have in the field right now, you know, how much chatter there is about this. If, if there is, more often than not, somebody that you either work with or know who um, is also interested in this or has maybe more information or that you just hear the conversation about psychedelic assisted therapy happening. Um, so it, to me, it sounds like it not so much. But again, just like your clients did, you know, you had to go out and find it and you found a whole program, which is which is awesome. I want to I want to double back to the misinformation part. But real quick, let's talk about exactly what psychedelic assisted therapy mm -hmm. is. Um, okay. So we, so our viewers can kind of understand, you know, what kind of psychedelics uh, specifically, you know, that you're working with in, in your studies, but also is kind of like the focus right now, because they're not all just, it's not a free for all as far as right. the therapy goes and research. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, and I want to um, sort of make a disclaimer. I'm not actually practicing with these um, substances yet as a practitioner, um, mainly because I'm going through the certification path. And so that when that is complete um, and I am certified, then I will be more likely to engage in the actual psychedelic assisted therapy, which I'll talk about here in just a second. And of course, not all of these are FDA approved. Um, I'll try to mention what is in that 
process of becoming um, FDA approved. Um, and not all states, obviously, um, are considering the legalization in general of these substances. So there's a lot going on there. Um, so, but anyway, so we're talking, so psychedelic assisted therapy is the modality that's coming forward um, based on research that is providing um, the protocol for practitioners to engage in the use of psychedelics in therapy in a clinical setting. And so what it typically is looking like at this point um, is that there will be several stages in terms of the treatment model. There will be uh, some preparatory um, sessions if we're talking about like a typical um, client practitioner relationship. Um, there are preparatory sessions. So there's, a, there's a prep stage where the client is prepped in regards to what to expect, you know, how this will look, you know, what um, they might experience, what it will be like under the influence of the medicine. Um, so typically those are like anywhere between two to three sessions, prep sessions. And then there is a dosing session where the client under the supervision of a medical professional and what we call a sitter, someone who's sitting with them during the um, under the influence of the medicine. And that, depending on the substance, takes uh, anywhere from an hour to an all-day experience under the influence of the medicine. And then there will be what we're calling integration. So multiple sessions post-dosing where the information that the client receives under the influence is processed with a therapist, integrated into their life, and made meaning out of. And the typical integration sessions are anywhere, depending on the, the setting, anywhere between one to three or four integration sessions. But the emphasis that's coming forward in the research is the real need to have these three stages uh, involved in this in a treatment, let's call it an episode. Um, and that is showing the most um, positive outcomes. And so that's what we're calling psychedelic assisted therapy. It just popped in my head and I, I'm, <laughs> this approach is, you know, in one angle, it's quite obvious why there has to be a prep, you know, set and setting situation and then an integration. But I just realized it just dawned on me, like compared to prescription medications, whether they are SRIs or for chronic illness, that's not the, that's never been the approach to pharmaceuticals, uh, short of like, take this for two weeks, let me know what the symptoms are, come back. Now, granted, it is not like you are, you know, no, I, I would presume with most prescription drugs, you know, approved by the FDA, you're not succumb to an episode in which you are, uh, I guess, pulled out of your own modality right um but again it's like either we are looking you know researchers and professionals that are like doing this these studies looking at what we have not done right so far but obviously confronting the fact that like you can't leave yet no right. no, no 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 so i i can see both and i love that i love that the mm, the 
the, the requirement for that to be the case for the modality to be set up in three stages and, and that integration of such a beautiful word um, is not only like has to be in place or just shows the best promise, but it totally blows out of the water the way we've handled prescription medications in the past with mental health. So like double win there, right? Not only yeah. might this work well once or twice, but right. it works because it's a, a way better delivery system. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So tell me a little yeah. bit more about, you know, I know you're not working directly with, and you've yeah. laid out the way like how um, a, a patient or a client would walk in and, mm -hmm. you know, go through this process. Um, what are the, the psychedelics that are being focused on right now in like research, mm -hmm. but also in, you know, mm -hmm. clinical trials and such? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so the one that most of us here have heard about, uh, or maybe most of us hear about most frequently is ketamine, um, MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD. Uh, those are the four main substances that are uh, undergoing clinical trials. Um, ketamine is already an FDA approved substance to treat, you know, off label um, treatment resistant depression. And so there are quite a few clinics, uh, providers that are acts that are using ketamine in their practices. Um, MDMA and psilocybin are both um, in clinical trials, phase three clinical trials. And the, the information that's coming forward is that that will show positive outcomes and those will be FDA approved relatively soon. That is the, the language that the researchers are using and the information that I am receiving as a student and so those three are right now the ones that we will are hearing the most about because ketamine's in use, um, MDMA and psilocybin are in stage three trials. And so those are the kind of main ones. LSD is, is undergoing clinical trials and has its unfortunate history uh, to begin with. And so I can't speak very well to LSD, but the other three are, are pretty prominent. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. It's like surreal to hear stage three trials yeah. that, it, you know, it's wow, that that's going to happen in, in, in my lifetime and exactly. it's going to rock the world. Right. Because that approval rating from the FDA is, I mean, I, there's going to be backlash, but I, I think there's probably going to be more backlash from the companies that are going to lose profit. Right. That, that, can't be dishing out medications like they do. And I'm not going to say all pharmaceutical companies are like that. Um, but still, I, I think people will be, people tend to be more, the general population tends to be more on board and um, quote unquote centric, um, I dare say open-minded, than we kind of perceive it in our own, you know, narratives. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, and so we had talked about before actually, um, it's, it's moving along in the yeah. academic world, and yet it is kind of nowhere to be seen in our conversations as far as the, the material that we receive in class. Now, I haven't had a human services, well, I do a lot of interdisciplinary stuff, so sometimes it pops up, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, 
HS 101 wasn't talked about, maybe mentioned no. a couple times, uh, maybe during like yeah. you know, the substance abuse course, but it, it's like, yeah. okay, it's like, are we, are we all going to be hush hush about it until there's like a green light to go from the government or, you know, <laughs> where do you see from the yeah. inside as a, as a, you know, a teacher and an educator, like what's happening? <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I can say uh, not much as far as, you know, what's going on other than at the research institutions and where, where the real research is going on. So right. in terms of like trickle down and how much this information is getting um, incorporated into our curriculum in terms of how we're training human service or mental health professionals, in my knowledge right now is nowhere. Um, and it, I am super, super curious and super concerned and um, wondering myself how this is going to be integrated into our work. Because in my mind and my vision, and as I see these medicines coming on board, you know, behavior, what is behavioral health in general? What are the human services fields going to do with it? How are we going to integrate it, incorporate it into our system? Mm-hmm. And that's a big unknown. You know, there are individual practitioners who are doing their thing. There are private companies that are setting up their own clinics. But how will this get integrated into our system for everyone to be able to access this um, is a complete unknown. How will we, we be training people to become therapists to understand how to even assess someone's appropriateness for psychedelics. I mean, it's, it's the whole nine yards. Um, and so it's not there. It's, we're a little behind. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say as a counselor educator, as an educator, I feel about 10 years behind what's happening (laughs) with psychedelics in terms of treatment. So that's, that's a big unknown. And that's why I'm so excited to talk with you today because, you know, my question is, to everyone, what, what, what do we want to do? How do we want to incorporate this? How do we want to begin to talk about this? And, and, and what is our role? And so I'm super excited to kind of put that out there. It's a beautiful question. And it's a strong, how do we redo this? How do we make sure that our culture doesn't shut it down or, you know, that the same mistakes aren't made that were made that led up into the, the war on drugs, which yeah, really, it's just led us back here. If we're, if we're being honest, the problems that have come out of the war on drugs and, and also the opiate crisis, and now we're back, the, the consequences of that, the solution happens to be the thing that rushed us into the fake problem in the first place. Humans are weird. We're a bunch of weirdos. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering, I know that, who makes the curriculum? So, okay, let me back up a second because I'm so I'm so curious about like yourself, the academic side of it, but also the, like the training and mental health um, integration as well. Yeah, in all sorts of disciplines, and I'm thinking strictly academia. When a new idea is brought forth, um, most people are like, "Nah, you're crazy. That's wrong. That's different." And then later, someone comes and I'm like, "Yeah, they are actually kind of right. This is probably a good idea." Um, Apart from having, you know, people leading the frontier in academia and also 
um, behavioral health training and professional things alike. Who makes our curriculum? Who, 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 who's, whose office am I writing a letter to saying, can you please add this to the textbook next year? Or is that also, I mean, is that a government thing too? Like, I feel like I should know this because it was one of my biggest, uh, I hated that I was learning stuff I didn't need to know in college. Someone else was giving me material and telling me that, hey, you paid to be here, but learn this. But like, <laughs> where's yeah. the shiny altar in the sky, yeah. you know, or the entryway besides it being someone in academia coming forward and saying like, I'm going to be a pioneer and I'm going to start teaching my own classes. That does happen. Um, but where are the, there's gotta be more than one access point or all, which is kind of try to bottleneck in and yeah. really risk, you know, doing it the wrong way. Yeah. Well, it's, those are great questions and it's, that's a pretty layered, uh, answer. And my kind of go to quicker answer probably is instead of spending like an entire week with you talking about the frustration around that, um, is that, you know, in our professional training, you know, area or curriculums, you know, a lot of it is determined by our licensures, like, uh, and our scope of practice. And so there's a, there's a body of individuals who kind of oversee determining the scope of practice. Um, and then our curriculum gets built around those scopes of practice. Um, and, and then those kind of get built into our state regulatory agents and regulatory bodies that govern and oversee those licensures. And, and so a, a lot of um, programs are designed around those kind of scopes of practice and those licensures that we obtain uh, once we get through our education. Um, you know, and so it's, there's a lot there. There's a lot to kind of try to understand around how those get developed. And, but let's just kind of say that there's a lot of um, commonality around programs. We're all kind of teaching the same thing. We're all kind of teaching the same areas. We're kind of putting our own sort of spin on it, of course, and trying to keep up with the newest information that's coming out of research institutions. And so we kind of, or behind the curve on this one. Um, we're not integrating this information into our systems. And I will also say that our state, and I'll speak for mine, my state licensure board and licensed professional counselor board here in Texas has nothing to say about psychedelics in terms of treatment. So they haven't made a stance or began to talk about how that might be incorporated into our scope of practice. So there's a long road ahead, you know, for all of us. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because it pops in my mind like the word yet. I can see maybe from the the, the size of those, those individuals and groups making these decisions when to start integrating this kind of information to, to wait, uh, not just for the seal of approval, but for the just the right amount of research that comes out and says, you know, we've got this, we got this, like we've got cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy. Like we've, you know, this works. And then I can definitely see, I mean, the job openings in this field are going to go berserk because as soon as that, that right moment hits where like the confidence can be there without the worry of it being torn down again and taken away an opportunity that, you know, in a year's time, 
every public and private university and every, you know, licensing board is like, here's a pamphlet, here's an opportunity, you know? Uh, so I could see, I can see probably hesitation, but I also see maybe a little bit of potential for it to be like an explosion or into, um, you know, so many different avenues of work. So I, I like, I just had that kind of thought. So like, maybe that's the case. Oof. Talk about a revolution. That would be a psychedelic revolution and it would be in our field. It could happen. That's why another reason I'm like so excited to have this conversation because this could happen. This could happen, you know? Um, And I think it's also imperative to say that the responsibility around how this happens is there. You know, I think that we need to be very careful. We need to be very thoughtful. We need to be very open to, you know, understanding this from a whole new perspective. Um, but yes, I mean, the opening could potentially be there. And, and that, and again, creates a real sense of responsibility about how it gets rolled out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that word responsibility, especially I think it's super core to human services, which might be kind of a no brainer to some people. But when it comes to the autonomy of others that we try to advocate and protect, yes. um, you know, in due time, like that is not just it's a responsibility, you know, just like yeah. not to get too philosophical, but freedom is also a responsibility. Like you can't just have that and run with it. Um, it right. You know, like any any tool can be used poorly or negative uh, or positively. So um, going back to the, I guess the modality of it, how, what's the trickiness of getting the, these psychedelics in office for treatment? Once you have your, your licensing, right. Mm -hmm. Then where do you go? Because I'm sure it's kind of a weird Avenue and it's state by state. Like, Okay, so you can now do this. You're a trained professional, you know, once you finish your program. But then what? Yeah. Do you just start? Or do you have to move? Like, how does that, how is that working out apart from private practice? Yeah, no, uh, great question for sure. And, and one that's um, a difficult one to answer. But, I, you know, I, my, my um, goal right now is to work my way into ketamine providing ketamine services. Um, and there are enough private clinics in my area now that that is feasible. Like it, I could potentially, you know, get a job as a practitioner at one of our ketamine clinics in town. We have enough that that could potentially happen. You can also, because ketamine is a legal substance and FDA approved um, for off-label uh, treatment. Um, you can, as a practitioner, um, set yourself up a couple of ways. You could be the integrative therapist where you're not actually present during the dosing that someone is going to a clinic and receiving the medicine, and then you are meeting them days or two or days later to do the integration. So there are a couple of ways for you to step into this space right now with ketamine. Um you could be connected with a provider, a medical professional who provides ketamine, um, and that person provides the dosing. And then you, they refer the, that provider refers you to, or refers their client to you for integration. Um, in terms of the other substances, this, the MDMA and the psilocybin, 
Um, I'm going to try and be cautious that that is happening in a more underground arena and how practitioners are actually doing that is unknown to me, but it is occurring. Um, and yes, there are just only a couple of states, Colorado and Oregon, I'm going to say I might be missing one or two that have decriminalized psilocybin. And that is a different ball game there. So, you know, you could move to Oregon, you could move to Colorado and be practicing, um, legally. Um, and that's kind of where it's at right now. So, so I would imagine my, my imagination says that once the FDA provides approval for MDMA and psilocybin, things will shift. Things will most likely change in terms of being able to access those medicines. Mm-hmm. probably state by state. And then there's also licensure by licensure. What professional licensures will actually accept that in their scope of practice? That could become a whole new territory that, you know, we're not yeah. sure of. So I'm just also, I'm humored by the idea that, you know, it all comes down to the drop of a hat from the FDA. And I'm just, my mind seeing people coming out of their underground bunkers, like, here I am. medicine for everyone you know um but it's the same issue people have had since the weird sticky walkthrough of medical marijuana right like here in the state of georgia you can have a card that says you can you know you're allowed to have it and it's like a few different um diagnosis that you're permitted to have it but you know it's still against the law for you to get it so people have to go around that some way right you know and it's it's federally illegal as well. So I would not like to see that happen with psychedelics because they're already too substantial of a, you know, not toxin, but they just so, they're so mind altering. We all know this, that it would be so irresponsible of the government to say, okay, yes, we believe your research. Uh, Yes. We're going to give you this much wiggle room but you got to figure out the rest on your own. And by the way, still don't get in trouble in that spot or this pot or this one. Like we with at least in human services. And like you said, like these other um, kind of licensures and professions that we share a space with, we all have to show up together and, and make sure there's a unified beginning um, and, and, and st- strong foothold in every step we take or else you know, there's just that, again, that risk of being pushed back. But then again, maybe not. I, I definitely see so much, I will say, professionalism and real careful curiosity in handling uh, the psychedelic research. Um, let's jump real quick to it's the treatments and the mm-hmm. type of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. A lot of research done on substance abuse. Um, mm-hmm. MDMA for PTSD. So can you kind of give a brief, like how do we get to these psychedelics and and start with these types of a diagnosis, right? Um, and I ask also being as, as a normal person who has a, my mom has chronic pain. She has a, a nerve disorder, but there's very, very, very little research being done on psychedelics and her type of nerve disorder. Um, mm. 
and I'm like, I'm wondering like, okay, did someone out there like find it out one day? They're like, Hey y'all, it works for this. Let's go this way. Or, or I don't know, just natural curiosity. Well, I'll do my best to answer that question. Um, there's just a wealth of information um, around that. But um, so, and of course it goes back to the fifties, you know, with the, you know, um, the discovery of LSD. Um, and at that time there, and I'll hopefully get my history somewhat accurate, but at that time there was a wealth of research happening around LSD and mental health disorders um, and a lot of positive outcomes coming forward. And then we all know kind of what happened um, with LSD and other substances that were under that were undergoing research. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a wonderful book um, by Michael Palin, and many of your listeners will either have read it or um, know about it. But How to Change Your Mind is the name of the book. Um, and it does an incredible job of laying out all of that history and the path that we have kind of taken up to this point. And there's also a, maybe it's Netflix. I apologize if I'd said the streaming platform wrong, but there's a four part series that covers the book, but the book is way better. Um, anyway, it lays out that fascinating history around psychedelics and um, kind of where it brings us to where we are today. So um, during that time, um, uh, there, there has very limited research for a long period of time. And then research began to happen with MDMA um, in the eighties um, through MAPS, which is the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic research, um, very um, prominent research institution around MDMA. Um, and they began to do research around MDMA and mental health, like PTSD and uh, depression. And, alcoholism or addiction. And so a lot of it kind of came forward through that. And, you know, my kind of go-to answer for your question was like, there, there were probably some discoveries along the way that provided indications for other um, potential benefits. So today we're seeing um, a lot of positive outcomes, um, particularly for treatment resistant depression. Um, and there's a particular criteria that um, provides us with, the, you know, a diagnosis for treatment resistant depression. But in general, it's when you have tried everything under the sun and nothing has helped. And psychedelics, in particular, ketamine um, and psilocybin are really coming forward as really efficacious for treatment resistant depression. They're seeing significant benefits with PTSD and, you know, particularly for, you know, veterans who have really struggled with PTSD, um, huge benefits for them, lots of positive outcomes in addiction, lots of positive outcomes in obsessive compulsive disorder, and an area that just is fascinating to me, end of life and palliative care. I was so, just yeah. about to ask. Yeah. If that was, if that was also a research avenue that was still being pursued, because um, I think, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Uh, one of my favorite, I won't call him a psychonaut because he did not come out that way, but he was, you know, he was, it was Richard, Richard Alpert who worked mm-hmm. with, um, I can't, now I'm blanking on his name. Anyways, they were the partners that 
you know, initially brought the research to Harvard and then they both got kicked out. Yeah. But yeah. Um, he, at the end of his life, uh, he, not so much working with psychedelics, but just in general, he had this um, tremendous outpour of uh, just wisdom and experience to give around end of life treatment and um, just being with people in those moments. And, and so I think that was kind of when mm-hmm. I learned about that, it's kind of around the time I also discovered like, oh, they're actually approaching this with psychedelics as well. And um, mm-hmm. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but also some terminal cancer patients. I mean, that's so end of, of life, but it's more like a yeah. helping you accept some things if that's how you choose. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a bit of research. Um, one of our lectures in my program just last week, and I, I, I can give you all the information uh, th- for people to access this research, but it was, it was a, a gentleman who had done a lot of research with terminal cancer patients and just phenomenal outcomes for folks dealing with the, the existential threat that they're under in the depression and the isolation and the, you know, and then just having a positive dying experience after having undergone, you know, psilocybin treatment. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, if you think about how we treat, you know, death in our culture today, it's not a pleasant experience for many, many, many people, you know, and, and to have a positive dying death would would be phenomenal for so many people. Mm-hmm.